Oh, it, it seems like only a week since I was here. Yeah, it's actually, I think it's eight days. Uh, but uh, this is great. There's so many of you here on a Monday night. I'm, uh, I'm really impressed to see that. Really impressed to see the kind of community that you're trying to build. Um, I was told I should really aim to end by 9 o'clock, so I'm going to do so. Uh, and I'm going to also uh, indulge in the, uh, the Buddhist convention of uh, making a mistake on purpose by giving a talk. Uh, and today, tonight, I might be making actually even a bigger mistake than usual uh, because I think a lot of the words that, that I'd like to share with you are uh, the words of Martin Luther King. Uh, Gil, when he called me, uh, asked if I would give a talk uh, based on Martin Luther King or from Martin Luther King or on Martin Luther King, and uh, that sounded uh, like a good idea to me. And so for the last week or so, I've been immersing myself in his writings and his actions and his sermons and his teachings and thinking about the places that are uh, to some degree parallel between the practices that, that we have as Dharma practitioners here in the West and also the places where uh, his example and his teachings push me a little bit. Uh, and it was just really refreshing to, to immerse myself in, in, in those writings. I had, read, uh, I had read a lot about him at various times in the past, and I really recommend, if, you, if, you've, uh, if you're looking to find out more about his life and times, there are uh, two biographies by Taylor Branch, Parting the Waves and Pillar of Fire. They're both fantastic books that give you a feeling for his, uh, not only his life, but what was going on uh, in the United States at those times. Can you hear me in back? Branch. Taylor Branch. Um, and it's really important to, to kind of keep these teachings and, and the real uh, Example of his life in mind because, uh, you know, when somebody becomes the image on a postage stamp, uh, there's something lost. There's something about the, the depth of that teaching or something about the truth of that teaching that's lost. So, um, you know, we pray we'll never see uh, Suzuki Roshi or Gil or anyone on, on a a postage stamp, but um, I had the maybe some of you also uh, had the opportunity to uh, hear him in person. Uh, I was at the 1963 march in Washington. Uh, uh, I think I was I was going into my uh, I was going into tenth grade. I think so. I was, I was about fifteen. Uh, and I was there. I remember standing in the reflecting pool and kind of 
looking up over there while he gave that famous talk and knowing that I was uh, inhabiting a moment of history but I but not knowing what moment that was. Uh, and also he came to the town, uh, the suburban New York town that I grew up in, and, and talked at the, at the synagogue at a time when the, the ties between the, the liberal Jewish community and the black community, the ties of, uh, of support and uh, connection were, were very clear. And that was, I also remember that. Actually, I remember more Ralph Abernathy, who gave a really uh, most compelling uh, pitch for money that I probably have ever heard or will ever hear. Uh, he, he really got the, he got those wallets and pocketbooks open. So my friend, uh, my Zen friend, Tygen Layton, uh, looking at a, Looking at Martin Luther King as a as a bodhisattva, as an enlightening being, uh, sees him as uh, embodying the archetype of uh, Samanta Bhadra, who's a figure that we talk about in the Mahayana tradition. Uh, Samanta Bhadra is uh, often depicted riding an elephant of wisdom, and uh, he's the bodhisattva of shining practice, of courage and resolve uh, and concern, one who leads people to the pure land. And I think that Martin Luther King really does fit that particular archetype. But I think he also fits another archetype that we don't have so much in the Dharma world. Uh, and it's a, it's a very difficult one in that he fits the model of a prophet, uh, of an Old Testament prophet, uh, a model that is a very difficult path of a person who tells the truth and inhabits a very lonely land for the telling of that truth and often pays the price with, with his life. Uh, and it's interesting, I was thinking about this in, in relation to the Dharma, and there really aren't examples like that uh, in our literature, in the sutras, the Pali sutras or the Mahayana sutras, uh, there's all kinds of uh, defilements and uh, anger and hatred, uh, evil of different kinds, but not one who takes on the truth of a society and bears the price for that. And that is the truth that increasingly, as his life went on, Martin Luther King was, was taking on. Uh, that he was seeing not just the truth of racism in our society, but also uh, that that racism was was linked to poverty and war. He spoke out on the Vietnam War very early on, and with more and more persistence as as his life went on. Uh, and uh, because he held that truth, it actually divided him off from many other people in this country who had heretofore been his supporters in the civil rights movement, uh, including some of his own uh, brothers and sisters in the church and some of his own black community. So for us, I think the implication of Martin Luther King's life uh, 
are that he exemplifies faith and patience, uh, a willingness, a difficult willingness to see things as they are, and at least an implicit understanding uh, of karma that his actions would have positive and negative consequences for himself and for others. But that the truth that he felt was one that led him to uh, practice patience, to be able to endure. The practice of patience is enduring insult, uh, enduring uh, un undeserved or unrighteous uh, actions that are directed towards you. And for that, he had a practice. And that practice was uh, deeply influenced by what he knew of Gandhi's tradition, which is also very close to, it's, it's a kind of dharma. Uh, it's, it's Hinduism, but it's Hinduism that was also informed by all of the uh, all of the traditions open to open to all people, and it was the discovering uh, Gandhi's teaching when he was in graduate school that really King acknowledges freeing him from uh, just the kind of uh, Christian goodwill to a practice of this difficult path of active nonviolence, and that example was more than an example uh, because he set, he set to work with circle of people, with students who were coming to him uh, to undertake training uh, that in order to practice nonviolence, you needed to have a practice, that you needed to be able to uh, sit in the middle of any situation, sit in the middle of strong emotions and not identify uh, someone as an enemy, but as an opponent. And to find the places of uh, meeting and the places of difference between you and always to see what is good in that person. So what I'd like to do is actually read to you from a sermon that uh, Martin Luther King gave uh, at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, a little after the success, uh, following the success of the Montgomery bus boycott, where for the first time, uh, one of the first times in American history, a concerted mass movement of African-American people turned around uh, a city government and turned around uh, policies of segregation. And that was in, they won that battle in, uh, in late 1956. And this sermon he gave was in, in 57. Uh, and it's called Loving Your Enemies. So I'm going to, I'll read part of this. I've edited it highly. And uh, from time to time, I'll maybe make some comments that uh, draw parallels with the practices that we share. So mostly this is his words, not mine. I want to turn your attention to this subject, loving your enemies. 
It's so basic to me because it is a part of my philosophical and theological orientation. In the fifth chapter of the Gospel, as recorded by St. Matthew, we read these very arresting words flowing from the lips of our Lord. Ye have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. This is like uh, many of the, of the verses in the Dhammapada, uh, that hate is not overcome by hate, by love alone is hate appeased. This is an eternal law. Or conquer the angry, conquer the, conquer the angry man by love, conquer the ill-natured man by goodness, conquer the miser by, with generosity, conquer the liar with truth. So he says, now let me hasten to say that Jesus was very serious when he gave this command. He wasn't playing. He realized that it's hard to love your enemies. He realized that it's difficult to love those persons who seek to defeat you, those persons who say evil things about you, but he wasn't playing. And we cannot dismiss this passage as just another example of hyperbole, a sort of exaggeration to get over the point. We have the moral responsibility to seek to discover the meaning of these words and to discover how we can live out this command and why we should live by this command. So now let us first deal with that practical question. How do you go about loving your enemies? I guess, this is the, I guess the first thing is this. In order to love your enemies, you must begin by analyzing self. Does that sound familiar? Uh, and I'm sure that seems strange to you, uh, that I start out telling you this morning that you have your enemies, that you love your enemies by beginning with a look at self. So we know about studying the self. That's what, that's what we're doing here. That's the, that is the entirety of the teaching, is studying our views, studying the ideas we have, studying our attachment to ourself, studying how that creates suffering for us. Uh, he was coming at it from a, a Christian uh, perspective, but it's the shared practice. Now, I'm aware of the fact that some people will not like you not because of something you have done to them, but they just won't like you. Some people aren't going to like the way you walk. Some people aren't going to like the way you talk. Some people aren't going to like you because you can do their job better than they can. Some people aren't going to like you because other people like you. Some people aren't going to like you because your hair is a little shorter than theirs or your hair is a little longer than theirs. Some people aren't going to like you because your skin is a little brighter than theirs or a little darker. They're going to dislike you, not because of something that you've done to them, but because of various jealous reactions and other reactions that are so prevalent in human nature. This is the flaw, the incompleteness in us that causes us suffering. Uh, it's there. We find it emerging even in the best of us at, uh, in times of stress. or it, I mean, it often catches us by surprise and is painful. But this dislike is something that we have to reckon with in others and in ourselves. 
But after looking at these things, we must face the fact that an individual might dislike us because of something we've done deep down in the past, some personality attribute that we possess. So here, if we translate into our traditions, we're talking about kama and vipaka. We're talking about action and the result of that action, that uh, the lives that we have, what we experience uh, to some degree is based on actions we may have done, is based on things that we carry on in our minds, that we, that we speak uh, or that we act out in some way. So he says, something that we've done deep and we've forgotten about it, but it was something that aroused the hate response within the individual. That is why I say, begin with yourself. There might be something within you that arouses the tragic hate response in another individual. And now he, he moves from there, and you can see that even at this early stage in his, uh, in his preaching career, in his career as a, as a person on the national stage, uh, his perspective was radical. His perspective was exactly the kind of perspective that, uh, that if he were speaking today, uh, Ari Fleischer would tell him uh, that he should watch what he says. This is true in our international struggle. We look at the struggle between America and Russia. Now, certainly, we can never give our allegiance to the Russian way of life, to the communistic way of life, because communism is based on an ethical relativism and metaphysical materialism that no Christian can accept. But in spite of all the weaknesses and evils inherent in communism, we must at the same time see the weaknesses and evils within democracy. Democracy is the greatest form of government, to my mind, that man has ever conceived, but the weakness is that we have never practiced it. (laughs) Isn't it true that we have often taken necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the classes? Isn't it true that we have often in our democracy trampled over individuals and races with iron feet of oppression? Isn't it true that through our Western powers we have perpetuated colonialism and imperialism? And all of these things must be taken under consideration when we look at Russia. We must face the fact that the rhythmic beat of the deep rumblings of discontent from Asia and Africa is at bottom a revolt against the imperialism and colonialism perpetuated by Western civilization all these years. The success of communism in the world today is due to the failure of democracy to live up to the noble ideals and principles inherent in its system. And this is what Jesus means when he says, how is it that you can see the moat in your brother's eye and not see the beam in your own eye. At this point, he had already uh, traveled to Africa once, and uh, he was really startled by the uh, the conditions that people lived in, and saw that even relative to them, even though their, their faces were much the same and their colors were the same, uh, that there was a that there were privileges that accrued to to him and to other African American people living here that were not available to people in Africa. So then he moves back to the personal. A second thing that an individual must do in seeking to love his enemy is to discover the the element of good in his enemy. And every time you begin to hate that person, realize that there is some good there. Look at the good points which will overbalance the bad points. He says, you can hear him saying this. There is a recalcitrant south of our soul revolting, revolting against the north of our soul. 
There is something within us that causes us to cry out with Plato that the human personality is like a charioteer with two headstrong horses, each wanting to go in different directions. There is something within each of us that causes us to cry out with Goethe, there is enough stuff in me to make both a gentleman and a rogue. Even the race that hates you most has some good in it. And when you come to the point that you look in the face of every man and see deep down within him what religion calls the image of God, you begin to love him. Discover the element of good in your enemy. And as you seek to hate him, find the center of goodness and place your attention there. Place your attention there and you will take a new attitude. In the Dhammapada, there's a verse that says, there never was, never will be, nor is there now to be found anyone who is wholly blamed or wholly praised. Another way that you love your enemy is this. And this is, I think, the hardest, I think. When the opportunity presents itself for you to defeat your enemy, that is the time which you must not do it. There will come a time in many instances when the person who hates you most, the person who has misused you most, the person who has gossiped about you most, the person who has spread false rumors about you most, there will come a time when you will have an opportunity to defeat that person. It might be in terms of recommendation for a job. It might be in terms of helping that person to make some move in life. That's the time you must not do it. In the final analysis, love is not this sentimental something that we talk about. It is not merely an emotional something. Love is creative, understanding goodwill for all men. It is the refusal to defeat any individual. When you rise to the level of love, of its great beauty and power, you seek only to defeat evil systems. Individuals who happen to be caught up in that system, you love, but you seek to defeat only the system. Now, if we had really had a bunch of time here, uh, that would open up an enormous discussion uh, about what what constitutes these systems. You know, they are made up also of people and of ideas, uh, and I, that's an it's maybe a discussion we have to hold in abeyance, what our attitude is about those systems and how, how we might address them while loving the people who are creating them, who are co-creating them, and seeing how we are co-creating those systems, which I think is a step that he didn't, he didn't go to. But uh, if we understand dependent origination in a deep way, we see that we are creating the entire system in which we live. Uh, which the world lives. And this is what Jesus means, I think, in this very passage, love your enemy. It's significant that he does not say, like your enemy. Like is a sentimental something, an affectionate something. There are a lot of people I find it difficult to like. I don't like what they do to me. I don't like what they say about me and other people. I don't like their attitudes. I don't like some of the things they're doing. But love is... but. Love is greater than like. Love is redemptive goodwill for all men so that you love everybody because God loves them. You refuse to do anything that will defeat an individual because you have agape, the Greek word that is uh, so parallel to maitri, to loving kindness in our tradition, that is just, uh, 
it's the impersonal love that takes in everyone, that makes space for everyone, uh, that wishes them well in their lives. So you you refuse to do anything that will defeat an individual because you have agape in your soul. And here you come down to the point that you love the person who does the evil deed while hating the deed that the person does. And if the opportunity presents it when you can defeat your enemy or your opponent in Gandhian terms, you must not do it. Now, for the few moments left, let us move from the practical how to the theoretical why. It's necessary to go down into the question of why we should love our enemies. I think the first reason that we should love our enemies is this, that hate only intensifies the existence of hate and evil in the universe. If I hit you and you hit me and I hit you back and you hit me back and go and so on, you see that goes on ad infinitum. It just never ends. And then in his wonderfully grounded way, he says, somebody somewhere must have a little sense. And that's the strong person. The strong person is the person who can cut off the chain of hate, the chain of evil, or the chain of becoming. And that is the tragedy of hate. It only intensifies the existence of more hate and evil in the universe. And then he makes this wonderful statement, which is his vision of how each person uh, is empowered to move all things. He said, somebody must have religion enough and morality enough to cut it off and inject within the very structure of the universe that strong and powerful element of love. There's another reason why you should love your enemies, and that is because hate distorts the personality of the hater. We usually think of what hate does for the individuals hated or the individual hated or the groups hated. But it is even more tragic, it is even more ruinous and injurious to the individual who hates. For the person who hates, the good becomes bad and the bad becomes good. Hate destroys the very structure of the personality of the hater. The way to be integrated with yourself, uh, the way to be integrated with yourself is is to be sure that you meet every situation of life with unbounding love. That, that's a Dharma teaching. Every situation in life. My teacher, uh, Sojin Weitzman, uh, whom some of you know, uh, his strong advice that he keeps repeating is, don't treat anything like an object. Don't treat anyone like an object. Consider that each thing that you handle a bell, a clock, a cup of water. Each person that you meet is yourself. And that's what he means by meeting every situation in life with unbounded love. Now, there's a final reason, I think, that Jesus says, love your enemies. It is this, that love has within it redemptive power. And there's a power that eventually transforms individuals. If you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem and transform them. But if you love your enemies, you will discover that at the very root of love is the power of redemption. You just keep loving, this is great, you just keep loving people and keep loving them, even though they're mistreating you. Here's a person who is a neighbor, and this person is doing something wrong to you, and all of that. 
Just keep being friendly to that person. Keep loving them. Don't do anything to embarrass them. Just keep loving them, and they can't stand it too long. (laughs) Oh, they react in many ways in the beginning. They react with bitterness because they're mad because you love them like that. They react with guilt feelings, and sometimes they'll hate you a little more at that transition period. But just keep loving them, and by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's love, you see. It's redemptive. There's something about love that builds up and is creative. And there's something about hate that tears down and is destructive. That's it. There's a power. There's a power in love that our world has not yet discovered. Jesus discovered it centuries ago. Mahatma Gandhi of India discovered it a few years ago. But most men and most women never discover it. For they believe in hitting for hitting. They believe in an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And oh, this morning, as I think of the fact that our world is in transition now, think of then, think of now. Our whole world is facing a revolution. Our nation is facing a revolution. One of the things that concerns me most is that in the midst of the revolution of the world and the midst of this revolution of the nation, that we will discover the meaning of the words, love your enemies. History, unfortunately, leaves some people oppressed and some people oppressors. And there are three ways that individuals who are oppressed can deal with their oppression. One of them is to rise up against their oppressors with physical violence and corroding hatred. For the danger and weakness of this method is its futility. Violence creates many more social problems than it solves. And I've said in so many instances that as the Negro in particular and colored people all over the world struggle for freedom, if they succumb to the temptation of using violence in their struggle, unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness. And our chief legacy to the future will be an endless reign of meaningless chaos. Violence isn't the way. Another way is to acquiesce and to give in, to resign yourself to the oppression. Some people do that. They discover the difficulties of the wilderness moving into the promised land. And they would rather go back to the despots of Egypt because it's difficult to get in the promised land. And so they resign themselves to the fate of oppression. They somehow acquiesce to this thing. But that too isn't the way because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. But there is another way, and that is to organize nonviolent resistance based on the principle of love. It seems to me that this is the only way. As our eyes look to the future, as we look out across the years and across the generations, let us develop and move right there. We must discover the power of love And when we discover that, we will be able to make of this old world a new world. We will be able to make men better. Love is the only way. And our civilization must discover that. Individuals must discover that as they deal with other other individuals. There is a little tree planted on a little hill And on that tree hangs the most influential character that ever came into the world. But never feel that that tree is a meaningless drama that took place on the stages of history. Oh no, it is a telescope 
through which we look out into the long vista of eternity and see the love of God breaking forth into time. It is an eternal reminder to a power-drunk generation that love is the only way. It is an eternal reminder to a generation depending on nuclear and atomic energy, a generation depending on physical violence, that love is the only creative, redemptive, transforming power in the universe. So this morning, as I look into your eyes and into the eyes of all my brothers in Alabama and all over America and over the world, I say to you, I love you. I would rather die than hate you. And I'm foolish enough to believe that through the power of this love, somewhere, men of the most recalcitrant bent will be transformed. And then we will be in God's kingdom. We will be able to matriculate into the university of eternal life because we had the power to love our enemies, to bless those persons that cursed us, to even decide to be good to those persons who hated us, and we even prayed for those persons who despitefully used us. Well, I apologize for the pace with which I moved through that. Uh, But I wanted to give you at least even some of this abridged feeling for his thought and example and uh, just make a few simple connections uh, so that you can go out of here and think about uh, how his life directly applies to your own to the practice that we share, and to the world uh, that we walk in and that we're constantly making and remaking with each breath. So thank you for listening. There are a few minutes left. Uh, If anyone has any questions or comments, uh, I'd be happy to hear them. I'm I'm really saddened that he's not giving speeches or talks like that today. I think we really need that perspective yeah. in our current situation. He said he was sorry that uh, he's not giving speeches. He's not here to give speeches like that today. Uh, you know, we are lucky. We, we have some exemplars, um, particularly in the, in the Buddhist tradition, uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh, who are speaking from the same uh, place of, of real deep personal integration and of a, you know, a commitment, uh, a, a knowing commitment to uh, active nonviolence, knowing that in nonviolence that that's a, that's a strategic uh, way of moving in the world and that it's a risk. You know, it's, not, it's not safe as it wasn't safe for King. But we, it's, this has not passed out of our lives. Right. Right. I got this talk off the Stanford uh, King Paper website. It's fantastic. And I went to it today, and I think 
half of the world must have been going to it because I couldn't get, I couldn't get, it was like just wouldn't open, you know. But it's, uh, it's a remarkable resource and it's very well organized. Well, it's a little complicated. Um, let me read it to you. It's not, I mean, the words are very simple. Uh, let me read it exactly. Okay, hate is not overcome by hate. By love alone is hate appeased. This is an, inter- this is an eternal law. That's not a great translation. Uh, it's actually by non-hate, not by love. And in a sense, what the Buddha taught was uh, that these positive principles of love are, those are our natural qualities that arise uh, when we are not afflicted by defilements like hate. You know, if you take away hate, by, if you have, if you, you know, dwelling in non-hate, then uh, it's kind of okay to translate that as love, as, as maitri as uh, practice of metta. Uh, but it's a little, this sort of a Christianized translation here. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a, a Zen saying. Um, it's, it's a pretty male saying. If if you meet the Buddha, kill him. Uh, which means you have to be the Buddha, or you have to be Martin Luther King. You have to you have to hold. Each of us has to hold ourselves to the awareness that we have to the highest standard. Um, I can't explain. Or apologize, you know, the shadow side of their personalities, uh, nor of the Buddhas. Uh, that may be, you know, heresy to say it. Uh, but uh, you start reading about, finding out about how difficult it was to get uh, to convince the Buddha to allow women to ordain, uh, and you see that there are, you know, there's social forces always at work, but. Our task, I think, is to, you know, not hold ourselves to their standard, but to the highest standard that we can find. So uh, I appreciate you raising it. And uh, if that troubles, it should trouble us. And when it troubles us, it makes us think about how do we conduct ourselves. So thank you. Yeah. I th- if, are you asking me to respond? I think that for some of us, uh, there are there are large areas in which what is right and wrong is hidden from us, that we don't see 
the impact always of our own actions. Because there are, you know, one way of talking about uh, defilements is its coverings. That uh, because of our habit, you know, because of the way our minds are trained from very early, uh, we have the places of truth are sometimes covered up. Some places may be quite obvious and we can see them and act there, and other places uh, may be still in the shadow. Uh, and our, the challenge of this practice is to uncover everything. Uh, so it's all there within us uh, that, you know, completely, uh, that complete awareness is available to us. Uh, but there are obstacles, and that's, that's why we practice. It's hard work. Well, maybe one more. I promised to end at nine. It's, it's nine, but it's not 9.01 yet. Any, anyone else? Now it's 9.01. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, enjoy the rest of this day.